Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. So this week we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 as a whole. And in the coming weeks we're going to actually going to come back to verses 4 through 6 because this represents kind of a creedal statement from the early church and just work through the different clauses of that statement because I think it would be beneficial for us, particularly living in where we live, as these verses are often used in, in different ways, and so I think it would be good for us. But today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians 4. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we come as a people who are so easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We want to see the next thing that perhaps might make us feel like we used to, might change our life circumstances, might somehow activate your power or whatever it is that we think we hear or believe. So Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to see it rightly as the words of a holy God given to a covenant people that they would know him and that they would live as they ought to live. Lord, help us. We are a people who want a word for ourselves, but we have a word from you. So as we open this word, we pray that you would change us with it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I read through this passage. It reminded me of my high school days when I played football. And I was a guard, which was as part of the lineman, one of the most non-glorious portions of the football game. It's just kind of a bunch of dudes that hit each other every play. And no one pays attention to them because they never touch the ball. They just kind of slam into each other and hope everything else goes well. I protect the people that, that ran the ball, but I never got to touch it. So one day when the coach suggested that we run a play called the guard sneak, I was quite intrigued. The play was supposed to kind of go to the right, or everyone was going to run to the right, and the quarterback was going to leave the ball on the ground. And as the defense would be fooled, because this is high school football after all, uh, I was going to pick up the ball and then run for glory. At least that was the plan, a guard running with the football. It was a glorious sight to see. Uh, the church in Ephesus was a relatively new church and needed instruction concerning how the members of that church were to interact with the whole. What are the roles for the people in the church? Especially considering what we just went through in the preceding two chapters with Paul making sure that the church understood that they were one people of God, no distinction between Jew and Gentile. While they may be diverse in their gifting and the areas of service they are called to, they are under one head, Jesus Christ. Like a football team, a church has lots of moving parts, and each one of those parts has particular functions toward the edification of the whole. And in the case of the church, the work that we do not only builds the church corporately and individually, but also glorifies the head of the church, Jesus Christ. 
embedded in this passage is again a kind of creedal statement in verses verses four through six that deserves a deeper look on its own, which we will do over the coming weeks. But today we're going to consider this passage as a whole before we consider just those two passages. And we're going to be looking at this passage today in two main ideas. The church is united in the essentials. And then secondly, the church is united in its diversity. So with that, let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says he, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean when but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the lead into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we come to the beginning of chapter 4, just for a little bit of context here in these opening words, we see I therefore. So we're going to we're kind of called to look back at what has been previously taught, right? We know that about the love of God from the foundations of the earth, as we read in Ephesians 1, calling the people for himself, adopting them into his covenant family. And this wasn't their doing, right? We read that in the first part of Ephesians 2, that this wasn't their doing. This is the work of God alone, making those who were dead in their trespasses to be alive in Christ, calling them to walk in the good works that he has prepared for them. And the process is not for just a kind of people, a certain type of people, right? This is for all people, not just the Jews or just the Gentiles, but for all Jews and Gentiles alike must be born again in Jesus Christ. As Lars taught us last week, it was the Apostles' Prayer that Christ's church then and today be rooted in Christ's love 
for us. And that more and more we would comprehend this great thing that has been done for us. That we have been made alive in Christ. And we would comprehend the fullness. In the classroom, one of the ways I know that a student is comprehending what I'm teaching is that when I watch them demonstrate a concept or an idea, whether it's a skill-based thing that they actually have to perform or some sort of concept that I'm teaching. They demonstrate that the material is sinking in when they can apply it to various situations that they're presented with. They start to incorporate it into their overall learning, and it becomes part of what they know. This is not different for us as a church, as we demonstrate our comprehension of God's love, its breadth and length and height and depth, the love that surpasses knowledge, as we read from last week. We demonstrate our comprehension of this by doing the things that we are called to do. Growing in Christ isn't an abstract thing. When people say to me, I don't feel like I'm growing in my faith, I always ask them, are you doing the things that you've been called to do? Are you walking in good works? Are you walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling in Christ? This is not rocket science. And Paul lays it out for us here as he demonstrates for us how the church is united in these things. That we are to walk in these good works, not in order to earn our favor before God that has been done in Christ, but so that we might show that these are the things that we believe. And that brings us to the first point. The church is united in the essentials. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. I therefore, prisoner... For the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here we are called, all of us, are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This takes us back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. It should anyway, where we are told that God's, we are God's workmanship. God has made us. And why has he made us? Or to what purpose has he made us? He has created us for good works that we would walk in them. He created us, of course, in our initial physical construction, but then we are recreated in Christ. We are reborn. And in Christ, we are to walk in those good works. It is our nature as Christians to do good things. We are no longer children of disobedience, children of wrath, as we are called at the beginning of chapter 2, but we are called children of God. The calling that we have in Christ is a high calling, so we should act as if we have that calling on our lives. But notice here, this walking isn't to be done in pride and self-confidence. Right? There's none of that. And it's definitely not to be done in a way that causes others to stumble. Again, we don't walk in in a sense of, look at me, look what I've earned for myself. Christ has done all the work on our behalf. And so then how should we walk? With humility and gentleness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your morality isn't a weapon to beat people with. But rather it is a gift that demonstrates to whom you belong. As soon as we forget that we were once dead in our sins, we start to think that we are somehow better than others. If we can't patiently bear with others as they walk in Christ, we show that we have forgotten that others bear patiently with us even as we speak. Even as we walk right now, people bear patiently with us. 
You don't have it figured out. You don't. None of us do. So be patient with others because they don't either. Humility here isn't simply a lip service idea saying, well, yeah, we're all sinners. It's easy enough to say. But demonstrate that you realize your particular sins in word and in deed. Realizing that you indeed have weaknesses. Not that we all do. That's easy. Realizing that you do. I am continually wary of people who only speak of sin in very general terms. When they speak of their sin, it's very general. But when they speak of their successes, it's very specific. Humility owns up to specific sins and is patient with the sins of others over and over. All the while, giving all the glory to God for every success that they have. We do this. Why? Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our walking in Christ should be that which builds up the body of Christ, not seeking to tear it down. One of the vows that we take of membership as this church and the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church and even as this congregation We say this, this is one of our membership vows, in loving obedience, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of this church, promising to seek the peace, purity, and prosperity of this congregation as long as you are a member of it. This vow speaks to this idea that we're looking at in Scripture. Do you promise to walk in a worthy or in a manner worthy of your calling? Does your walking promote the unity of the church? One of the essentials that we are united in is is this idea of what constitutes godly character. This is something that we are called to as a people of God. But another essential that we are united in is our doctrine. Specifically, which ones? Well, we see that in verses 4 through 6. There's one body, one spirit, just to you were... Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to spend some time working through these in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to go over the specifics of each one of those things. We will break those down over the next coming weeks. But these doctrines that Paul is listing out, one Lord, one body, one spirit, these are all things that we agree with, that we agree on by necessity, right? We agree in one Lord Jesus Christ. That is a necessity as a Christian. If one piece of the structure of these beliefs, right, is missing, the rest of it tumbles because scripture becomes a book of lies. If the rest of scripture is speaking about one Lord, but in another part of scripture I read that there's possibly two Lords that we should be worshiping, the whole thing falls apart. If God isn't triune in nature, then the Old Testament and New Testament are both fables because they speak of a triune God. If faith and hope in another besides Jesus can bring out salvation, if I can indeed be saved by some other God, then Jesus isn't who he says he is. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can no longer trust Scripture if that's not true. And if the church is more than one body, 
If there are all kinds of bodies of Christ, then we stand divided, and the body of Christ cannot be divided. There are doctrines that we can disagree on, brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's not these. These are doctrines that unite Christians, no matter what denomination we're a part of, no matter what building we are meeting in on a particular Sunday morning. And there are groups that hold to other doctrines. There are groups that say that Jesus isn't the only way of salvation. And they're not Christian groups. It's as simple as that. They can say that they are, but it really doesn't matter what they say. If they worship another Lord besides Jesus, it's not a Christian group. We can disagree about some of the nuance of those things, and we're going to talk about those in the coming weeks, but in their primary substance, there has to be unity here. This is a reason why we have documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms that we talked about earlier in the service. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a document that brings together all of our basic doctrines and puts them in one place and in a particular order that makes them very easy for us to study. The Catechisms are perfect teaching tools for a church, for a family, because they anticipate questions that might arise as we walk through any system of doctrine. What is our purpose? We read last week, right? What is the what is the purpose of man, the chief end of man, to glorify and enjoy God? Well, how do you know how to enjoy or enjoy and glorify God? Well, the scriptures tell us this. Question three. Well, what do the scriptures principally teach? And that we it, it keeps going. It anticipates one thing after another. You get the idea. The catechisms aren't at all exhaustive as you read. The question and answer there, what is God? And you may be thinking, well, they left some things out. It's because it's not exhaustive and God is completely inexhaustible. What could you not leave out if you began to describe God? That's not the point. The church is flawed because it's full of people. So these documents are flawed too. But it doesn't mean that we can't use them, that we can't have a system of doctrine that we say these are the things that we believe. They aren't scripture. They've never intent, they never were intended to be anything resembling scripture. But it isn't a bad thing that our doctrines are spelled out by people who have thought long and hard about them. And documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith help us to think long and hard about our own faith as well. And some people will say things, well, I don't need any confessions. Just give me scripture. That's fine then tell me what the Bible says about itself. When I when someone tells me uh, they don't need a confession, they just need the Bible, I will always ask them that question. What does the Bible say about itself? And they can't answer the question. Nine times out of ten. A system of doctrine, an understanding of a concise system of doctrine is helpful for us to understand the summer and summarize the teachings of Scripture and the Westminster Confession of faith serves to simply put everything there so that we're unified, not divided. And that brings us to the next point. The church is united in its diversity. Let's look again at verses 7 through 11. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So verses 8 through 10 there kind of touch on some interesting ideas, this idea of ascending and descending. I think 8 really gets at the heart of what's going on here, seeing that you know, but grace was given, verse 7, to each one according to the measure of gifts, and that we are given, that he has given gifts to men, and then we get into this ascended and descended, and frankly there are tons of opinions on what all this stuff means, and so I'm not going to get into this. I think the important part for us to take away here is that Christ is victorious, and in his victory we are given gifts, or you could think of it as like, spoils of victory, so to speak. And what are these gifts? Well, we have those spelled out in verses 11 and 12. And he gave, these are the gifts that we have, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. To what end did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The gifts that he gives are actual people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That isn't to say that their ability to do those tasks wasn't a gift also. Of course, it is that every Christian has been given a particular set of gifts from the Holy Spirit that allows them to do the work of ministry to which they are called. There are several places in Scripture that list them. 1 Corinthians 12 is a good one. Romans chapter 12 also, if you want to go and look at the particular list of those gifts. But in this particular list... We have a gift, a group of people who are gifted to do a particular work. And the substance of that work, though all of those words mean different things, apostles, prophets, evangelists, all of them mean different things, the substance of all of their work is to do this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Christ gave the church these people so that the whole body would equipped to do the work that they've been called to do. The job of this group is to help all the saints walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling. Sadly, and so many times, the pastor is hired in order to do the work of the ministry while the church sits back and watches. I'm very fortunate in this church not to have that kind of situation, but sadly it happens many times. Paul's instruction here for the church is that he, the pastor, is to equip the saints to do the work. Now, that doesn't mean that the pastor is sitting back and not doing work either. That's not what that means. He's just another one of the saints who's to be doing the work of God also. But why is the pastor called to do that? Well, it's here in the Word of God. This particular role is to be ministering the word of God to the saints and to prayers in the saints so that they might be equipped to do the work. And most of the time for the pastor, what does that mean? That means he's also doing the work of ministry because he teaches and he leads by example. And that's an important idea that the church should realize that the pastor is there to equip the, the, the saints to do the work of ministry, but he too should be doing the work of ministry alongside them. We continue in verse 13, until we attain, so this is to happen, 
until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are to continue this way until we attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God. And so really that's going to happen ultimately on the day that he calls us home to glory. But we start seeing that happen right here on earth. But it's perfected in the age to come. And it's then that we'll finally see this, what Paul says, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this goes not only for the church as a whole, but also for the individual. We are growing together as a whole, that we grow as individuals through the equipping of God's word. Why do we need this equipping? We see that in 13 and 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Why do we need this equipping? Why do we need the word of God? If we've all been given particular gifts of the Spirit, and if the Spirit has gifted us, then why do I need to be equipped? Aren't I already equipped? Don't we have all these roles that we should be doing? Don't we already have the grace of God on our lives? And shouldn't we be doing this perfectly already? I love this picture here. So that we are no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The picture here of no longer being children. I guess the easiest way for us to understand this would be like a child who plays with a toy for a little bit and then is bored with that toy and wants to move on to the next bright and shiny thing and then maybe gets bored with that after a little while too and then is looking for the next thing that's going to satiate their desire to you know, do whatever. They may not even know what their desire is. So many times we are like this child, only waiting for the next big exciting thing to thrill us concerning our faith, tossed by the next wind of doctrine, whether it's a health-wealth kind of gospel promising financial prosperity if you'll just send whatever amount of money to some charlatan on the TV, whether it's a little boy writing a book about his trip to heaven to ensure us that heaven is for real, whether it's the secrets that we should see in a series of blood moons outside. Oh, okay, well, there's the secrets of God right there. The moon is a little bit orange tonight. These are all winds of doctrine that would blow the believer off course if we would allow it. If we aren't equipped with the word of God, we will float around from one cool thing to the next, just waiting to see how it's going to serve us now. When we here at Redeemer say that we believe in the use of the ordinary means of grace, we're not unique among Reformed churches in saying that, but what we, what we say is that we truly believe that God uses the ordinary preaching of His Word, the sacraments, prayer, the fellowship of the saints, these, these ordinary things that seem ordinary to us in a world of so many shiny new things. That he uses these ordinary means to grow his people individually. 
and to help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We don't need human craftiness or cunning. We need more of God's truth. We need less human wisdom, not more. We need to be tossed to and fro a whole lot less than we currently are. And if you hang your hat on security found in society or cultural norms, you'll only ever be tossed about, constantly needing to change in order to keep your head just slightly above water. God's Word is an anchor for our souls, an island of security and rest in the midst of the tempest of this world. And it is the way that we grow as believers. Look with me again at verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Rather than be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, we are to speak the truth in love, growing up in every way into him who is the head, Christ our Lord. In him the whole body is joined together. All the different parts, all the things that make us different and unique are joined together. That we are unified in this diversity. Each part is necessary to the functioning of the whole. The minister's to be equipping, but the minister cannot do it alone. He needs the whole body who has gifts that he doesn't have. That is certain. The, the minister needs the whole body. Why? Because when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love is what we are told here. So that the church will grow. This isn't a numbers thing at all. This is a systemic growth. As, as we grow as a people of Christ, as we learn more about Him, as we learn the way that we ought to live, as we learn how to walk in a many, manner worthy of our calling. And if our hope is anything but Christ, we have no hope at all because He is the head. And let me say this too to the unbeliever here this morning. This is true for you as well. We've been talking a lot about the church and the members of the church and what Christ has done for His people. But He is the only hope. If you don't agree with Jesus, you can't go out and find something else that you do agree with and find hope in that. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through Him. He is the only hope of salvation. He is the gift of God to sinners who cannot save themselves. And if that's you this morning, call out to the name of Jesus and you will be saved. So in conclusion, to finish my football story from earlier, I'm a guard, or was, not a running back. And so when I ran the ball that day, it was a disaster. As you can, as you can imagine, I wish I had a film of it because it would, it would go viral pretty quick. Because I ran okay at first, I was actually pretty fast for a big guy back in those days, but as soon as some of the Fast players realized that they were fooled by some surly lineman. They said it was like blood in the water, and I was a little defenseless fish, and they came at me from every angle. And I knew I had no idea how to hang on to the ball. I knew, had no idea how to get tackled or any of those things. It was just a real circus mess. 
Church, when we aren't unified, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like that lineman running down the field with a football thinking he's about to do something special. When we are not unified, we cannot stand. The world will bowl us over, and we have no hope. When we aren't unified, brothers and sisters in Christ, we aren't actually serving in the capacity to which the Lord Jesus has gifted us to. We cannot hope to function the way that he has called us to. We spent many weeks speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan of salvation for his people, and that is an absolutely good thing. Without the righteousness of Christ in our lives, who could stand before a holy God? None of us. Even as we come to his table today, even as we come to the table of our Lord today, let's be reminded of all that he has done for us, that in him alone that we have salvation, that he alone is our peace, that in him alone we are called one people, one body of Christ. In that, because that's true, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We have to live out this life that we have been called to live, and we have to play the part in the church, in his people that we have been called to play. For all of us, no matter who we are, that part is taking the name of Jesus Christ into the world, living the way that he has called us to live, proclaiming the name of Christ is the one true hope of the world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we admit that we are frequently, like children, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, hoping that this next thing that we find will be the thing that makes us finally feel the thing that we think we ought to feel or believe the thing that we ought to believe or whatever it is that we're looking for beside you. Lord, help us. Draw us closer to you that we would cling to you when the waves toss about. That we would not be tossed to and fro, but that we would cling closely to the truth of your word and that we would see you as our only hope and peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.